Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Steele. Um, we're here each week. We take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday Divine Service. Today we're going to be spending some time with the readings for the 13th Sunday after Trinity. Trinity 13 brings us to Luke chapter 10. And uh, this is a section of scripture that is very, very familiar, not only in the church, because it's a pretty standard Sunday school story, but it is uh, pretty familiar, even with those who are outside the church. We have uh, good Samaritan orphanages. We have good Samaritan uh, hospitals. We have good Samaritan laws in our land. And so many people are vaguely familiar or intimately familiar with the details of our parable. And we want to examine that. Uh, we want to actually look at the words that are here in the Bible, the inspired inerrant word of God. And we want to see what they teach us about the person and work of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he and he alone can bring. Vicar, Luke 10, 23-37. Turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Okay, so we have one of these parables that has kind of a, a wonderful morality story. Have mercy, go and do likewise. Um, Pastor, this text isn't really about whether I should feel guilty or not when I'm driving down the interstate and I see somebody with a flat tire and I'm wrestling with the question, should I stop and help? Should I uh, just call 911? Should I ignore it because I'm in a hurry? There's a little more here than that, isn't there? Yeah, it's it's actually about faith and then uh, the fruit that faith bears, of course, that, that part is there. But primarily then it's about faith, who can believe and who... Um, who does believe, and and on the other hand, self-justification and its faith that uh, I can save myself by what I do. And so we have to balance these things correctly, and this particular text is all about that. Okay. When we, when we see a parable, 
you know one of the one of the first questions we ask is what is the what is the main point of the parable um we ask where is jesus in the parable and i think these are these are good questions these are legitimate questions and there's kind of an ongoing debate you know is jesus the good samaritan is uh, jesus the man who is beaten and left half dead on the side of the road um you know, these are some of the things that, that people just kind of naturally ask themselves as they're reading this parable. In many of the parables, Jesus goes on and gives us exactly the details that we need to know, and he doesn't do that for every one of the parables. And so that's why it's so very, very important that we examine the actual words of the parable to see what's going on. Now, the first couple of verses in our text, uh, Luke 10, 23 through uh, 23 and 24, um, it's kind of like a, a preparatory, a preview. It's not directly connected to the parable, but it is indirectly care, uh, connected. Turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What's he talking about? What, 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 why are the disciples so blessed, even more so than the prophets and the people of old? Well, the prophets pointed forward to Jesus, but they didn't actually see Jesus or hear Jesus preach, and the disciples actually get to. And I think we're probably in the same boat as the prophets. Wouldn't it be nice if we could uh, actually have seen Jesus and witnessed him and talked with him one-on-one, and yet we were not able to. Only the disciples and the apostles were able to. We get to uh, interact with that in the sense that we have the words of the apostles. In fact, uh, the Gospel of St. Luke is uh, the words of the apostles uh, recorded for us and researched well so that we can hear it. But we don't have that firsthand interaction with with Jesus in the same way the apostles do. Jesus starts out telling the parable, and uh, one of the main characters here is the lawyer. The lawyer who uh, asks the question, the first question that he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Pastor, that seems like a uh, completely wrong question. I don't do anything to inherit. I just have to be a part of the family. Is it a trick question or is the lawyer confused? I don't know if it's a trick question or if it's uh, just a confused lawyer. Uh, he is a lawyer, and so his area of expertise is the law and and finding the little um, ways to get around things or in uh, with the judge L- or loophole, what, loophole things, things uh, the details of the law that he's an expert in. And so it, it could be an innocent question. It could not be. But I think we're going to see more as we get a little further in the text about what his motivation is in this um, when we learn that he's seeking to justify himself, which is the, the real issue. Okay, so Jesus... Uh throws the question right back at him. Uh, What is written in the law? I mean, you're a lawyer. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So did the lawyer answer Jesus correctly? Yeah, in fact, uh, we still teach our kids this in confirmation class when we talk about the Ten Commandments. The first three commandments are about our relationship between us and God. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength and mind. And the second uh, seven commandments are about Christian love and care for our neighbor. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so uh, the problem was not that he didn't read the law correctly. The problem was that he did not understand God's word. Jesus gives him a question. Well, you know, uh, you're a lawyer. What's the law say? And he answers him by quoting, I believe, from Deuteronomy. Uh, Yeah, I think he quotes actually from two different places in that that regard because we have, um, uh, let's see, cited um, from Deuteronomy 6.5 and then also from Leviticus 19.18. Okay. And uh, so then Jesus says, okay, you pass the test. You want to do something to inherit eternal life, Mr. Lawyer? Do this, and you will live. 
Now, is Jesus being a smart aleck here, Pastor, in uh, trying to tell this man to do something that he can't do? Is he trying to get him to, is he trying to be a motivational speaker or a coach and give him a pep talk to go out and, uh, you know, just try your best, pick yourself up by your bootstraps? What's Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus um, is using the law properly. And uh, the law doesn't uh, only tell us what we need to do to be saved. It does do that, but it also teaches us that we haven't done what is needed to be done to be saved, that we need something more, somebody else, something outside ourselves to fulfill the law for us, and that's where Christ is leading this man. If you want to do something to inherit eternal life, and that's, that's why it's a bad question, if you want to do something to inherit eternal life, God's word's clear. Be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be perfect, as I, the Lord your God, am perfect. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. Now, immediately the man asks a follow-up question. Um, because verse, I can't read the time, 29, 29. verse 29. Uh, he asks a follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? Uh, but... The question, and the question is what prompts Jesus to tell the parable. But the question is not really as important as what is motivating the question. What am I talking about, Pastor? Yeah, Luke tells us the man is seeking to justify himself. In other words, he's seeking to say, look, I have done this, but... You know, we can't read the man's thoughts, but it's perhaps that he's sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, the people who are on either side of my property, I've been kind to them and taking care of them, but maybe two houses down, uh, he has a neighbor that he doesn't get along with or doesn't like. And so you have to say, okay, who is the neighbor that I'm taking care of? Who, how far does this uh, love towards God and love towards neighbor really go? Is it everybody? Uh, You know, Technically, the United States is a neighbor to Canada. So does that mean if I want to save myself, I have to actually be kind to Canadians? Uh, or, uh, or can I continue to uh, you know, mistreat them and, and think rudely of them? Uh, not that we actually do that, right? But that's when we're getting into the law, we have to know how far the bounds of the law go. And this man is a lawyer, and so he has to know that as well. Uh, He asked the question not so that he can love more people. He asked the question so that he can love less. Yes. I want to know what the boundaries are. I want to know who my neighbor is. Does it extend 100 yards, 10 hundred yards, 13 miles? I want to know, but I want to limit because I want to limit my love of neighbor. I want to limit who the neighbor is. And when we, self to justif- when we seek to self-justify, to justify ourselves, it always works that way. We love less instead of more. And the focus is completely on us and what we do rather than on our grace-filled, gift-giving God. And Jesus is going to teach him that here very, very quickly. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll be right back. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Lord Jesus Christ, the sinner's friend. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today we're looking at the readings for the 13th Sunday after Trinity. We began our discussion of the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 23-37. And... Um, We have those first few verses, 23 and 24, that really set the stage. Um, The disciples 
had the great privilege of seeing, hearing, witnessing God in the flesh among the among them. Uh, something even the prophets didn't have. We have that same privilege today by grace through faith. Every time we stand and hear and read and study the Word of God, we are standing on holy ground. And I think we need to be reminded of that. These are not just uh, stories to pick apart. This is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. It is life, and it is life for us. In our first segment, we talked about how the lawyer in our parable, and again, this is a parable, this is a made-up story. We don't want to put too much time and effort and detail into, oh, I wonder what the lawyer was thinking here, or I want to, no, just take the words, the bare naked words of our text. The uh, lawyer wanted to justify himself. He wanted to limit who his neighbor was so he didn't have to love quite so much because he wanted to be sure and certain that he would have eternal life. And now Jesus tells this parable uh, in response to his question, who is my neighbor? He says, beginning in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Not a lot of time, Pastor. Uh, Tell us about the road down (laughs) from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, it's actually the road that goes, whenever you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. Whenever you're going away from Jerusalem, you're going down. But this is very literally a way down because Jericho is on the uh, Jordan River Plain, and so it's about 1,000 feet below sea level, whereas Jerusalem's 2,000 feet above sea level. But it is the road that goes out um, to the east of Jerusalem, uh, over the Mount of Olives, down through Bethany, and then down into the Jordan Plain where Jericho is. And so it's the road that Jesus would be traveling the opposite direction on, uh, on, um, on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified and killed. But that's the direction the road goes. Okay. And so is there anything particularly dangerous or treacherous about this path or this road? Um, it is in the sense that um, it is kind of an arid, dry region. There's not a lot of water until you get down to the Jordan River. Uh, there are, even up to this day, uh, many... Um, how do you say it, caves where people would live on the side of the road um, that are kind of the wandering people that don't have homes and things like that. Uh, Bedouins, there's the word. Bedouins uh, live in that area watching their herds and whatnot. Um, But it it is in the ancient world always dangerous when you're traveling uh, because there's not the ability for police to watch over roads and things like that. Um, I, I will not make any defund the police comments. In response to that, Uh, he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Um, It's a common thing in the ancient world. Like I said, um, there's not a police force. uh, There's no... Uh, police cars, even if there was a police force for them to get there, they'd have to uh, get on a a horse and ride or a donkey and ride out there and do things. And it's just not feasible. And so back in the ancient world, you had to take care of yourself. You had to defend yourself, probably carry a sword. Uh, But this man gets the uh, rough end of that stick. It would have been a common, uh, commonplace thing that they would be used to. And um, apart from law and order in any society, you have chaos because evil is very, very real and lives in the heart of all mankind. Now, we have the, uh, the three players here, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. The uh, priest is going down the road. He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. Samaritan came to him and had compassion on him. The uh, priest and the Levite are churchgoers. They're supposedly, by outward appearance, pious and holy people. Uh, I've heard many things that uh, what they did was not wrong, what they did was not sin. To uh, touch blood or to touch a potentially dead body would make them unclean. And so all they were doing is following the law. Is that what Jesus is teaching here in this uh, parable? 
Well, I mean, in a certain regard, that's true, but we have to understand what the law is. We went back to the Ten Commandments, right? Who's your neighbor? Uh, We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, but we also should show fervent love towards our neighbor. And so in that sense, these people were not fulfilling what the actual Ten Commandments, the second table of the law, say. But they could, just as a lawyer might uh, try and do, justify themselves in such a way to say, here's why I wasn't doing it. And that's what we do all the time. We do. Our our actions or our inactions, we justify it all the time. Now, in response to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus brings up a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Under normal circumstances, the lawyer probably would consider the priest and the Levite his neighbor, but he would not consider a Samaritan to be his neighbor. Why not? Well, uh, Samaria is north of um, Judea, and uh, in the Old Testament times, it would have been the center and the capital area of the kingdom of Israel uh, when it broke apart from the United Kingdom. Um, Not the United Kingdom, England, but the United Kingdom of Israel. Um, And so uh, it is... um, eventually captured by the Assyrians, and uh, the poorest of the poor Jewish people remained uh, that weren't destroyed or taken away, and they actually breed, uh, that's the, the word, right, um, with the Assyrians, and so in a sense they're half-breed Israelites. They still worship the right way. In fact, even up to this day, they uh, perform sacrifices for the Passover. Uh, you can go into Samaria and watch them do that at the, the appropriate time. They slit the the, the throat of the sheep, and they, they roast them the right way and everything. So in that sense, they are Jewish in their worship, except they worship on a different mountain, but they are not ethnically pure, and that's a big deal back then in the ancient world for the Jewish people. They were despised, they were hated, they were mistreated because of their impure ethnicity, uh, and Jesus is teaching us that's inappropriate and wrong. Yeah, in the same way that you know we have a lot of cultural, ethnic, racial things going on in our world today. And, uh, you know, it just needs to be said. Racism is sin. It is. To look down on someone else because of the color of their skin or the accent that they speak or the home that their ancestors came from, uh, this this is sin. This this is uh, contrary to the Word of God. Um, as as. God says in Acts, do not call unclean the things that I have made clean. And he's talking about everybody, everywhere. Amen. Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are freely justified in Christ Jesus our Lord. And uh, that's that's God's answer to racism. It's sin. It's wrong. Uh, Jesus paid for all people for all time. So... Uh, Pastor, in our uh, in our text here, we have the Samaritan, and he binds his wounds, pours pours on oil and wine. He sets him on his own animal, brings him to an inn, and takes care of him. He shells out money out of his own pocket. He promises that he'll come back and uh, repay uh, any other expenses. by doing all this, by binding up the wounds, by putting him on his own uh, beast of burden, by paying the penalty, by promising to come back. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus talk. Am I supposed to be thinking about the Good Samaritan as Jesus, or is that not really the point of the text? Well, I think we can say that um, the Good Samaritan does act as a Jesus for this man because that's the same sort of things that Jesus does for us by his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, But uh, we also then are supposed to be Jesuses for the people around us in the sense that we also do the same things because ultimately— Christ is the true Good Samaritan in that he gives up his own life for us. He uh, gives up everything he has for us. He fulfills the law for us in a way, way beyond even what this Good Samaritan does in the parable. And so that's really the key thing. Jesus is the Good Samaritan par excellence, and 
because of what he has done for us in our lives, we also then are to act as good Samaritans for others. Not for self-justification's purposes, but because we have been justified by Christ Jesus. So in a free, joyous response to the saving, the salvation, we're beaten and left half dead in the ditch. And the good Samaritan Jesus comes and picks us up and gives us new life. He binds our wounds. He uh, pays for our care. He promises to come back and take care of everything at the end. Because we are the recipients of this, we who have received mercy from God, we go and do likewise, not to earn salvation, but just in joyous response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it that simple, Pastor? It's that simple, and that's the reality that we ought to take from this text. Holy Hootman, why in the world do we try to complicate matters so much? Um, is it that all of us are self-justifying lawyers deep at heart? Yeah, that's the absolute truth. We always are wanting to find a way to insert ourselves into our own salvation because we want to pat ourselves on the back and to think highly of ourselves and to compare ourselves with others. And so if we can put ourselves into the equation somehow, we can uh, elevate ourselves. And yet the truth is, is that Christ alone justifies and saves and uh, has rescued us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. And uh, he will not share that duty. And I think if you want to understand that concept, uh, a really good place for a Lutheran to study would be the small called articles where it goes through all sorts of doctrine and says, look, if we don't have Christ crucified and risen as the central doctrine, but instead put ourselves in somehow, this is how it destroys the faith in this way and that way. Do not allow anybody to turn <clears throat> this into an Aesop's fable, moral of the story, go out and be a good Samaritan and God will love you. God has already loved you in the, I'll, I'll steal your line there, good Samaritan par excellence, Jesus. And now we get the joy and the privilege to go and do likewise. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the Old Testament reading, 2 Chronicles 28, 8 to 15. Don't chase that down. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us, 8 and 10.30 on Sunday morning, 6.30 p.m. Wednesdays. We gather to hear the Word of God, receive the gifts of God, and we will be unpacking these readings for the 13th Sunday after Trinity. All of our church services are broadcast live, KNNALP 95.7, right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Check out the website, church website, goodshepherdlincoln.org, or our radio website, thecross957.org, to uh, listen, download the app, check out the archives. Love to have your feedback as well. The Old Testament reading for the 13th Sunday after Trinity is from Second Chronicles, 28, and we don't get a lot of uh, readings during the church year from either First or Second Chronicles. 28, 8 to 15, Vicar, take it away. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded, and he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me. And send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. 
certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshillamoth, Jehizekiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives, and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. Okay, now we see why this particular text was chosen. You have the good Samaritan. We have a couple of references to Samaria here as well. You know, Pastor, as I as I was listening to Vicar read these words, I, I'm I'm a little bit confused. Who is defeating who? Who is in battle with who? Who's being taken off into captive? Uh, you know, we got Israel, we got Judah, we got Samaria, we got these different players going on. Can uh, can you help us make some historical sense? This is not a parable. This is not uh, you know some kind of a story that we're to get a moral from. This is this is real history that's going on here. Uh, help us sort some of this out, can you? Yeah. Uh, remember again that this is. Um a couple things, I guess, to start with. Chronicles is written with a theological slant uh, on the history, not to say the history is wrong, but it's telling you the theological reasons that all these things happened. We again have the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, uh, Israel being the northern kingdom, Judah being the southern kingdom. The two had been united together uh, in the time of the united monarchy, but uh, now they are separated after the reign of Rehoboam, uh, who is the son of um, Solomon. Uh, in the north, you have the king Pekah, uh, who is the king of Israel. And in the south, you have King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. Neither one of these guys is particularly good, uh, but um, they're always then fighting, and that makes sense because they're not that far apart. Uh, Samaria being the capital of Pekah, just to the north of Jerusalem, which is the capital of Ahaz. So we have Judah and Israel fighting against each other. And, and yes, and there's to make it even more complicated, there's also the king of Syria uh, who is involved in this and kind of egging the suicides on and had been fighting as well. And so you have, you have to remember long term that you have Israel, which is in between Egypt, which is a great and powerful empire, and in between Assyria, which is a great and powerful empire. And uh, this is part of the conflict going on between these two different small kingdoms, is the people that are pulling the strings behind the scenes. And you can kind of read a little bit of that if you read the earlier part of chapter 28 uh, taking place. It picks up um, after the battle between Pekah and Ahaz, where... Um, Judah loses. Judah loses the battle, and their people are taken captive by King Pekah in the north. Okay, so they're taken captive by the uh, northern kingdom. The northern kingdom. Uh, who are being assisted by Syria, being funded by uh, Samaria. Um, the uh, uh, how how does or is this just taking place in the land of Samaria? How is the whole Samaritan thing connected here? Well, Samaria uh, it has twofold meaning. Samaria, first off, is the hill area to the north of Jerusalem, which, when the kingdom gets divided. Um, one of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and I, I just lost his name off the top of my head, he builds a city there um, called Samaria as well. And so okay. that becomes the capital of the northern kingdom. Kind of so, like the state of Nebraska and Nebraska City. I know when I was a kid, similar man, thing. I was so confused by that. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. And so you have the city of Samaria that's the capital of uh, Israel, which Samaria, the city, is located in the hills of Samaria as well. 
And if I if I understand my uh, theological history here, Pastor, everybody in the nor- the ten tribe northern kingdom, everybody in Israel is guilty of sin simply because they refuse to come to Jerusalem to worship. And this is a part of the greater Samaritan sin because they are not worshiping at the place where God told them to worship. Do I have that, do I have that right or partially right? It's, it's a small part of it. We also have um, the politics behind it, right? Um, why doesn't the king of Israel want the people of Israel going down to Jerusalem to worship? Because when they go, they take their money with them, right? Just like, why is everybody angry that Nebraska football doesn't get to have a season? Because uh, lots of people make money over the people doing football-related activities here in Lincoln, right? The, or, the, or the people crossing the river into Iowa to go to the casinos yes. when some people want that money yeah, here in Nebraska. Okay, well, let's get down to the bottom line here. Um, what is this with the captives and don't bring the captives, bring the captives. We don't want to multiply our guilt. Uh, who, who is doing the doing? You, know, you said that the, the people of Judah are defeated, the two tribes in the south. The, is it the, the people of Judah that are being carried off into captivity and then the people are showing mercy and then clothing them and send they, sending them back? Is right. that what's happening here? So that's the way it worked in the ancient world is if you lost a battle and were captured, you were basically a slave. Uh, and so when the kingdom of Israel in the north defeats the kingdom of Judah in the south, uh, they capture their soldiers and perhaps even uh, people from nearby cities and villages. And what you do is you pillage them, right? So you take their stuff, you strip them naked, you chain them together, and your right as the victor is to go and sell these people as slaves, uh, amongst your own people to neighboring peoples and things like that. Which, which still goes on in some parts of the world, even today. Right. It, it happens in our own country today with little children, right? Uh, the elephant yes. in the room that nobody talks about, but it happens all the time. Uh, all these missing children, lots of them are sold as slaves here in the United States for uh, inappropriate purposes. But that in the ancient world, it's different in, in a, the sense that... Um, when you lose the battle and you get captured, that's what happens to you. And so these people uh, of Judah have been captured. They're being brought back to Samaria, uh, the victorious uh, city, to be sold as slaves. And the prophet comes out and says, this is inappropriate. Why? Because these people are actually your relatives, because you used to be one people, the people of Israel, the sons of Israel. All of you are descended from the same people. You're all genetically related. These are your cousins. Why would you have your cousins be your slaves? It's inappropriate. And uh, the response then to the word of God is they hear the word of God and believe it. Yeah, they hear the word of God and they change their heart and their mind. They don't want to. They know their guilt. They know their sin. They don't want it multiplied, and so they do some very good Samaritan kind of stuff. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho. They heard the word of God. They believed the word of God, and then they responded appropriately according to the word of God. Kind of sounds like the life of faith. It is. Um, And the thing that's odd is that the northern kingdom, uh, just in general, is oftentimes thought of being... um, evil much quicker than the southern kingdom was. They fell away from the faith much quicker, uh, but yet they still are able here in this instance to hear the word of God and be swayed by it to do what God wishes. And, and so that, that, that sets the stage for Jesus' own parable of the Good Samaritan, where again you see the person that you least expect it uh, from outward appearances doing what is right by the faith, acting as a Christian, if you will, um, according to the Word of God. And uh, that reminds me of the early words in uh, Matthew 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, we should not judge others what we think they have in their heart what we think they have in their mind 
uh, by outward appearances. That's the kind of judging that God forbids. And many times when we just take a good, honest look at people, things are not always as they seem and appear. Nine times out of ten, the people of the northern kingdom are the evil ones, and the people of the southern kingdom are the good and godly and pious ones. And here in this text from Second Chronicles 28, we see it just the opposite. These people are not responding and being good Samaritans to get God to love them. They heard the word of God that God loved them, and they responded. What a great example and lesson for us. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. When we come back, as we look at the readings for the 13th Sunday after Trinity, look at Galatians 3, 15 to 22. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks for tuning in to Proclaiming the One today. The first two segments of our program, we looked at the gospel reading, the familiar account from Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just the opposite, probably one of the least familiar accounts that you'll ever hear on Proclaiming the One, Old Testament from 2 Chronicles 28, 8 to 15. The northern kingdom showing compassion and mercy on their cousins, their brothers from the southern kingdom. And now we want to see the practical application of these two texts. Galatians 3, 15 to 22, the law and the promise. Take it away, Vicar. To give a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here we have a marvelous text from uh, Galatians, Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And again, it's difficult to take uh, little snippets from Galatians without you know, taking a picture at uh, the, the context, the, the whole book in general, but uh, especially what's going on here in chapter 3. Uh, Paul is giving an argument, uh, a very, very classical rhetorical argument, that uh, we are saved by grace through faith and not on account of the works of the law. At the end of Galatians 2... Um, Paul writes, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's how chapter 2 
ends. And then chapter 3 really expands on that last verse, Galatians 2.21, talking about, well, does that mean then that the law is worthless, that the law has no purpose? And uh, is, does the law save us a little bit or not? Here, beginning in uh, verse 15 of Galatians 3, Paul writes, uh, to give a human example. And the human example is talking about a promise, a covenant, you know, some kind of legal contract or agreement. And everybody knows, using this legal example, that if you make a human covenant or a contract, I oftentimes think about a will. I think that fits in here very well. Um, you just can't willy-nilly add or subtract from it. <laughs> Unless I, you're a cell phone company, right? <laughs> yeah, we've updated you. your terms of uh, agreement. No. Yeah, well, that's a that's a whole other uh, uh, problem here. But uh, Paul's argument is basically saying a contract is a contract. Right. Is that right? That's right. I mean, uh, it's with your with your bank when you get a mortgage, right? They can't all of a sudden say. Uh, now you need to pay your mortgage off X, Y, and Z, or you can't say, you know, I'm not going to pay it because of this. Uh, the, the deal is the deal, and there's no editing that. Okay, so uh, he, he makes this, you know, the human example, and then he tries to make the point, and he brings in this whole Abraham and offspring thing. What, what's the deal? What's the contract? What's the point? What is Paul teaching us here? Well, Abraham's great because Abraham's the place where uh, things start to get clarified a little bit more uh, after the time of Adam and after the time of Noah. Beginning uh, in Genesis 12. Genesis 12. So in Genesis 12 is where the promise is made that uh, to your offspring I will give this land. It's further clarified in Genesis 15 uh, when you have the uh, covenant made between God and Abraham. And, and a covenant's a very important sort of contract and deal where uh, you would take an animal and cut it in half and the two people making the deal stand in the middle of the two halves of the animal they get bloody and dirty and they say if you break your end of the deal you're going to be like this dead animal that we're standing in the guts of and so god makes a covenant with abraham except god is the only one who stands in the midst of the two halves of the animal in the the form of a smoking pot and so the promise is uh, that uh, I will be your God and you will follow me and I'll give you this land to your offspring. And, and Paul's point here is all these promises are to offspring, not plural, but instead offspring singular. And the, the promise, therefore, is to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all these promises that God is making with Abraham. Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all the promises God has ever made to anyone, in fact. And uh, Paul's making that point very clearly here, using his uh, Hebrew grammar and his Greek grammar very well. Okay, so this, this is the deal that God made. This is the promise, the covenant that God made with us. And, uh, you know, God is not going to null and void the promise or the covenant. And it's great because what happens if a covenant's broken then, right? This is key. If you break your end of the deal, then you're going to be cut in half like this animal we're making Be the deal in the blood and of. bloody and now if the the promises between abraham and his offspring jesus when the deal gets broken by anyone uh descended from abraham or from uh any anybody in 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 the deal what what's the deal what what happens to the person who breaks the offs or the the deal killed cut down destroyed and now if it's abraham and his offspring jesus and the deal's broken by us because of our sin who gets killed as a result of that well it's got to be one or the other doesn't it it's jesus the offspring and so that's this that's the whole thing that's here that maybe we don't understand very well that paul is talking about jesus gets killed to fulfill the covenant that we broke and that is the the perfect word picture with regard to and you know in the hebrew language you you don't make a promise you cut a covenant and that is specifically talking about the the cutting of that sacrifice and walking down the middle as pastor talked about now uh he goes on to talk about here that uh, how does the law fit into all this because if the really, really important thing is the promise, then why did God give the law? What, how does that fit into here? Well, it's, it's great because um, Abraham 
makes this covenant with God, and then they're enslaved and in Egypt, and they come out, and uh, God gives Moses the law, and then you have the kingdom of Israel that comes about as a result of that, and this all is encompassing 430 years of time between the time that Abraham gets the promise and the kingdom of Israel is established. And Paul is counting that time all together. And he's saying the law didn't really uh, come into effect where you were able to keep it and do it until the time you got into Israel and the promised land. And the kingdom uh, of Israel is established. And that whole time uh, in between, you had the promise but not the law, right? You had uh, the promise of the offspring Christ, uh, but the law wasn't really there and working yet. And because of that, I mean, that didn't make the promise not void, right, or or not count. Instead, the promise still is there, and the promise is the bigger and more important part. And the promise is the way you're saved, not the law. Uh, and that's how all these people in the in-between time are saved, because they also have the promise, even if they don't understand or have the law yet. How does... How does um, Judah, the ancestor of Christ, get saved? He's born uh, before the law is given to Moses. He lives his whole life before the law is given to Moses. His ancestors, his descendants, uh, are the one who are enslaved in Egypt. How is Judah going to be slaved? Well, he has the promise, which is given to his great-grandfather Abraham. And that's the, the important thing for us and then by extension. Pastor Poppy, how are you saved? Not by keeping the law, not by fulfilling what God wishes uh, on your own, but rather because you've been given the promise that someone is going to take the place for you and God's punishment for breaking the covenant that God made with you. And it doesn't mean that the law is unimportant, but that the law has no power to save. I think we get that same example in uh, the life of Abraham, where he is given the promise in Genesis 12, but he's not given the command for circumcision until Genesis 15. And so uh, what, what would have happened if uh, he would have died in those three chapters in between? Well, he had the promise. It wasn't the law that saved him. It was the promise. And uh, the same is true for us. We have that clincher at the end. Um, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's your promise for today. Cling to that Savior, that uh, ultimate Good Samaritan, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Vicar, you want to bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, give us an increase of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you have promised. Make us love what you have commanded. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Sunday morning when you get up, read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastors, and most of all, just go to church, hear the Word of God, rejoice in His special gifts for you. We'll see you again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ.